Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. Allenby Captures Jerusalem While sometimes referred to as a sideshow in histories of World War I, the Middle East was a region of considerable value to both the Allied and Central powers during the war. As stalemate mired the Western Front, both sides expended vast amounts of men and treasure in the Middle East, in efforts to outflank the other and with an eye to expanding influence in the region in the post-war period. With the discovery of vast petroleum deposits in Persia in 1908, in what is today Iran, the region was far too valuable for the warring powers to ignore. Shortly before World War I, the British had signed an agreement with the Anglo-Persian Oil Company to secure exclusive rights to the region's petroleum deposits. This agreement was designed to ensure this vital resource for the British Navy. As Anglo-Ottoman relations began to deteriorate in 1914 at the start of the war, the British quickly realized that the oil pipelines in the region had to be protected. Mesopotamia, today mostly modern Iraq, bordered the oil-rich areas of Persia and the important oil refinery at Abadan. Mesopotamia was nominally controlled by the Ottoman Turks, and the proximity of this Ottoman territory to the oil pipelines meant that British access to this resource could be cut off or restricted. To protect access to the oil, an Anglo-Indian force was dispatched to Abadan and later west to Basra in what is today Iraq. This would be the start of the Mesopotamian campaign. Although deemed part of the general Middle East sideshow of World War I, this campaign would cost the British Empire 92,501 men and require a commitment of 414,000 men by the last year of the war. As the Mesopotamian campaign developed, other strategic interests resulted in further British commitments in the Middle East. 1915 would see the start of the disastrous Gallipoli campaign as part of an Allied effort to assist the Russians and open up a supply line through the Dardanelles and Black Sea. 1915 would also see the start of the ultimately successful Sinai and Palestine campaign that involved fighting in what is today Egypt, Israel, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and Syria. Following the Anglo-Egyptian War of 1882, the British had occupied Egypt. Until 1914, however, Egypt was still technically a province of the Ottoman Empire, but in reality it was completely dominated by Britain in what was referred to as the Veiled Protectorate. When the Ottoman Empire joined the Central Powers on November 5, 1914, the British dropped all pretense and declared Egypt an official protectorate of the British Empire. The impetus for this action rested in British fear over access to the Suez Canal, a vital link between places like India, Australia, New Zealand, and Europe. By January 1915, the British had 70,000 troops in Egypt. This force was comprised of Indian troops and the Anzacs, a term coined for the Australian and New Zealand forces. British fears over the security of the canal were soon tested. In 1915, a Turkish force of 20,000 attempted to seize the canal. They were easily beaten back, but the attack had exposed the weakness in the British plan to defend the canal from its west bank. 
Accordingly, British commanders began planning a move deeper into the Sinai to defend the canal from El Arish on the east bank. Within a year, there were 400,000 troops in Egypt preparing for this operation. When the operation commenced, the movement forward was slow. Water and rail lines had to be extended to support the force entering the Sinai. By December 20, 1916, the British had reached El Arish and had secured the canal. They also had amassed enough troops in the area to prevent a Turkish drive across the Sinai. At this point, many expected this to be the end of operations in the region. People who thought that, though, were not on the same page as British Prime Minister David Lloyd George. Lloyd George had risen to power in 1916 and was utterly disenchanted with the battles of attrition taking place along the Western Front. He found battles like the Somme costly and ultimately ineffective at breaking the stalemate of the Western Front. He was looking for a more decisive type of engagement that could turn the tide of the war. He was also acutely aware of the relationship between military successes and achieving political objectives. As he sought a solution to the problem of the Western Front, his interest in expanding the war into Palestine grew. Confident in this idea, Lloyd George began calling for a movement out of the Sinai into Palestine. Such a campaign, he argued, would further embolden the Arab revolt against the Turks that British officer T. E. Lawrence had been helping foment. This, combined with the British campaign, would force the Ottomans out of the war and leave Germany with one less ally. The possibility of capturing Jerusalem was equally attractive. A city denied the Crusader Richard the Lionheart, whether it was strategically important or not. The very name Jerusalem would glitter in dispatches, and as an added benefit, control of the Holy City might also be expected to confer a level of moral authority, something very important for wartime propaganda. Tasked with this new mandate. In Egypt, British General Archibald Murray informed London that he did not have enough troops for this new mission. His request for more troops was denied. The campaign had political support, but there were still other military realities to face. Preparations for the ill-fated Nivelle offensive were underway in Europe, and the Allies were desperately scraping together forces for that. And so, as January 1917 began, the Egyptian Expeditionary Force, a mixture of British, Indian, Australian, and New Zealand troops, began advancing east without additional reinforcements. By March 1917, rail and water lines had been expanded to the border of Palestine. Turkish forces retreated from their forward positions and began reinforcing the area of Gaza on the Mediterranean. On March 26, the British forces attacked Gaza, but communication efforts, poor staff work, and general misunderstandings resulted in a bungled operation. The confusion continued. In reporting the result of this first battle of Gaza, Murray reported Turkish casualties as 8,000 and his own as 3,500. In reality, the Turks suffered about 2,447 casualties and the British 3,967. With Murray's incorrect casualty estimates and the optimistic tone of his report, London misunderstood the outcome of the operation and assumed the battle was a success. The British papers also treated the battle as a victory, so much so that an Ottoman pilot dropped a message on the British army that read, 
You beat us at communiques, but we beat you at Gaza. With most of the world thinking the battle was a British victory, Murray was ordered to capture Jerusalem with no delay. Surprised by this order, Murray tried to clarify the status of Gaza and again asked for reinforcements. This time, London put a new division at his disposal, but still encouraged him to hurry up and capture Jerusalem. Time was not on Murray's side. In the interlude, German military advisers had advised the Turks to dig in and fortify a line from Gaza to Beersheba. The Turks also used the time to ensure they had adequate artillery and air support to defend against another attack. British intelligence indicated that Beersheba was lightly defended and that the bulk of the Turkish troops were near Gaza. The logical thing to do would be to attack Beersheba, but this also presented a problem. Logistically, the British could not provide enough water to concentrate a large enough force there, and London would not allow Murray the time to build up enough supplies to conduct an attack there. Only one option remained: a frontal assault on the recently reinforced Turkish positions around Gaza. On April seventeenth, the Second Battle of Gaza began. By late afternoon, the British called off the attack. They had lost six thousand four hundred and forty-four men to the Turks' two thousand casualties, and had once again, even after the lesson of Gallipoli, failed to credit the Turks' ability to tenaciously defend a piece of terrain. The Egyptian expeditionary force was severely weakened by this defeat, and even the War Ministry in London was forced to admit that this latest reversal meant no further advance would be possible in the immediate future. General Murray was relieved of command in June of 1917, but London remained convinced that the Palestine campaign and the capture of Jerusalem would drive the Ottomans out of the war. General Edmund Allenby was chosen to replace Murray, and on setting out for the Middle East, he was told by Lloyd George, "Jerusalem before Christmas." The message was clear: the government wanted success, and it wanted it fast. Allenby was a graduate of Sandhurst and had served with distinction during the Boer War. Prior to being selected to lead the Palestine campaign, Allenby had spent several years on the Western Front. While there, he had experienced all of the difficulties of a commander on the Western Front, from reversals to stalemate. He was a relatively popular officer, however, known for visiting forward positions. Something that set him apart from Murray and would make him quite popular in the future with the Egyptian Expeditionary Force. Although many officers objected to the Middle East sideshow, Allenby mirrored the War Cabinet's view that 1917 was an uncertain year and that Great Britain had to stay engaged and protect its assets around the world, even if that meant weakening the Western Front to free up troops for other theaters. In Cairo, Allenby was met by T. E. Lawrence, who had been fanning the flames of the Arab revolt against the Ottomans. Allenby agreed to use the Arabs as irregular forces and secured a monthly subsidy for the groups Lawrence was working with. This monthly subsidy amounted to two hundred thousand pounds in gold, or roughly ten million U.S. dollars today. Lawrence was impressed with Allenby and later described him as large and confident. And morally so great that the comprehension of our littleness came slow to him. Like many politicians and commanders, Allenby also had a son serving in the war. 
At the end of July 1917, Allenby received word that his 19-year-old son Michael had been killed on the Western Front. The death of his son was devastating, but the general was determined to carry on. In a letter to his wife, he wrote, Michael achieved early what every great man in the world's history has made it his life's ambition to attain, to die honored, loved, and successful in full vigor of body and mind. During the entire campaign, the general struggled with this personal tragedy, often quoting Rupert Brooks' poetry to members of his staff. Duty, however, would allow no pause in his service or the pursuit of the mandate he had been given. On arriving in the Middle East, Allenby had surveyed the region. He immediately realized that Beersheba was indeed the enemy's weak point. In order to take Beersheba and begin folding up the Turkish defensive line around Gaza, he asked London for three more divisions, more aircraft, more artillery, and more service troops to assist with the logistics of the campaign. This time, London complied. By September 1917, the Turks had two armies and a total of 35,000 troops in the Gaza area. By the end of October, the British had amassed 88,000 troops in the region. As with earlier engagements during the campaign, this battle would pit German, Austrian, and Turkish forces against troops from Britain, Australia, India, and New Zealand. Allenby's primary objective was Beersheba, but he employed a number of deceptions over the course of a two-month period to make the Turks think his target was Gaza. Three weeks before the start of the new offensive, a British officer rode to a Turkish guard post, allowed the guards to chase him, and then dropped a bag smeared with horse blood to give the impression that he had been wounded and had accidentally lost his message bag in flight. Inside the bag were numerous documents related to a planned attack on Gaza and a fake letter from British intelligence outlining the impossibility of an attack on Beersheba. After weeks of such deceptions, the Turks were convinced that no attack would be made on Beersheba, or that if one did occur, it was merely a diversion designed to draw their attention away from the real objective of Gaza. As a result, when Allenby's forces attacked Beersheba at dawn on October 31st, the Turks were surprised. The Turkish commander was forced to call in his reserves just to repulse the first assault. Typical of the campaign, the battle was a curious mixture of cavalry charges, hand-to-hand -hand fighting, artillery, and airplanes. By evening, the British had won the Battle of Beersheba. Gaza was next. In early November, the British attacked Gaza. This time, the assault was preceded by an Anglo-French naval bombardment off the coast. As this continued, the British launched additional attacks on the Turkish trenches in the late hours of November 6th. As this continued, the British launched additional attacks on the Turkish trenches in the late hours of November 6th. The next day, the Turks abandoned Gaza. Victories at Beersheba and Gaza left the British in possession of 4,000 prisoners and 59 guns. Allenby's forces pursued the Turkish armies as they retreated. On November 11, 1917, exactly a year before the war would end, Allenby was warned by London to slow down his advance. After months of being pressured to deliver gains, London was now worried of the risk of overextending supply and communication lines. Allenby accepted this warning, but his forces continued their march to Jerusalem. 
From November 17th to the 24th, British and Turkish forces engaged in the Battle of Nebi Samuel. The village of Nebi Samuel was an integral part of the Ottoman defenses in front of Jerusalem, and its capture was essential to the entire operation. By November 21st, the village had been captured, but British forces then faced numerous Ottoman counterattacks that forced them to hold the village and that also prevented them from reaching Jerusalem. By early December, the British had improved their supply lines and were able to bring forward their heavy artillery, water, and other supplies. Allenby also used the opportunity to bring fresher troops into the fight. Turkish counterattacks continued, but on December 7th, the reinforced British army went on the offensive. With British forces within three miles of Jerusalem and slowly cutting off supply lines into the city, on the evening of December 8th, Turkish forces began quietly abandoning the city, retreating north to Nablus and east to Jericho. On the morning of December 9th, two British soldiers encountered a delegation from Jerusalem made up of the mayor, priests, rabbis, and imams. The group was looking for someone to surrender to. On December 11, 1917, General Allenby entered Jerusalem as its 34th conqueror in history. His entrance was quite different from that of many of his predecessors, however. It was also markedly different from the entrance of Kaiser Wilhelm II into the city in 1898. The Kaiser had ridden into the city with great pomp. In contrast, Allenby dismounted at the Jaffa Gate and entered Jerusalem on foot as a sign of respect for the holy city. Aware of the complexities in occupying such a sacred place, Allenby immediately took measures to reassure the inhabitants of the city that their customs would be respected and preserved. In a declaration of martial law, he proclaimed, Your city is regarded with affection by the adherents of three of the great religions of mankind, and its soil has been consecrated by the prayers and pilgrimages of multitudes of devout people of these three religions for many centuries. Therefore, do I make it known to you that every sacred building, monument, holy spot, shrine, traditional site, endowment, pious bequest, or customary place of prayer of whatsoever form of the three religions will be maintained maintained and protected according to the existing customs and beliefs of those to whose faith they are sacred. It was one of the high points of his career, and it seemed to take some of the edge off of his grief over the loss of his son. Several days after Allenby walked into Jerusalem, he sent this message to his wife. Twenty-one years ago we were married. Since then I have had twenty-one years of perfect happiness. That happiness has been marred by one great sorrow, but the remembrance of Michael will always be with us and will be nothing but a joy. The sorrow not to have known him would be far greater than the grief of losing him for a while. For all this happiness, I thank you. The capture of Jerusalem in December 1917 was one of the only bright spots in the war that year for the Allies. In Rome, church bells announced the recapture of the Holy City. Catholic churches in London did the same thing. British newspapers declared the Crusades finally won and over. Jews across the world also took note. Movements based in Palestine and Europe that sought to establish a national homeland for the Jews felt a renewed sense of destiny. The victory also helped make Lloyd George even more convinced that the Middle East was the key to winning the entire war. Allenby was given two more divisions and instructed to continue the campaign with the objective of knocking the Ottomans out of the war. 
As Allenby was preparing for this new mission, Germany launched a final massive assault on the Western Front. In the scramble to secure that front, two of Allenby's divisions were recalled, along with the majority of his support troops. Even with a diminished force, however, the campaign in Palestine would continue. 1918 would see the Battle of Megiddo and the capture of cities like Aleppo and Damascus. British engagement in the Middle East was also increasing, setting the stage for even greater commitments and entanglements in the region. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.